Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff. Here on my right is my ever-increasing great library of RPGs and my grognard files. For this episode, I've been studying the Hawkmoon box set that Eddie, our resident bargain hunter, managed to seek out and buy with the 20 quid challenge that I set for Dragon Meat 2015 in episode 4. He was so shrewd that he also managed to get the Eternal Champion scenario, the only Chaosium Hawkmoon supplement, the Shattered Isle too. I've got a full set of the Mongoose series. Hawkmoon was based on the iteration of the RuneQuest rules and written by Gareth Ryder Hanrahan during a scuba diving holiday. Listen to episode 21 to hear that story. On my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll uh, just give it a tap. Ah, the eternal champion has appeared as the cosmic convict Stella Star. For no other reason than she hasn't appeared for a while. Observant listeners to the GrogPod will notice that we have a light-touch, thematic approach to our programming. Recently, we've been interested in the literary adaptations in RPGs. Merp's Lord of the Rings, the Chaosium supplement Thieves' World, and last time we looked at the new design mechanisms game of Jack Vance's Leoness. Alongside this seam of RPGs, we've also given a commitment to try a different post-apocalyptic game every month in 2020. Recently, we looked at Gamma World, and we have more coming soon. In this episode, the two themes come together, as we will be looking at role-playing in the tragic millennium, created by Michael Moorcock for his Hawkmoon, and Count Brass series of novels. The history of the Runestaff is often collected together as an omnibus of the novels that Moorcock produced between 1967 and 1969. This was at the height of his prolific period when he was struggling to finance New Worlds magazine, which had become independent and more avant-garde than its previous incarnation. In order to maintain this platform for propelling a new wave of interesting and provocative authors into the consciousness of science fiction audiences, he had to produce novels in three days. The Duel in the Skull, the first and best of the series, The Mad God's Amulet, The Sword of Dawn and The Runestaff tell of the adventures of Dorian Hawkmoon from Germania and his struggles against his fate, destiny, and the dark empire of Grand Britain. Yes, Britain of the future is a depraved, cruel and expansionist force. The King Emperor Huron is locked in a sphere of milky fluid, 
dispensing instructions to his aristocratic legions, who were aligned to strict chivalric orders, each signified by distinctive animal masks, which they wear proudly to terrify their enemies. It's a world we recognise, but with a feudal system, strange technologies, and an unambiguous evil in the form of Grand Bretagne, whose esoteric orders cross the Silver Bridge to conquest and flood new lands with their cruel depravity. It's got dark conspiracy, epic battles, resistance movements and toxic wastelands in Amaric. Strange bioscience of Grand Bretagne and the capricious manoeuvrings of Asia Communista. It's also an intersection in the Moorcock multiverse. Hawkmoon appears in the Young Kingdoms and alongside Ecros in a cosmic battle and law and chaos. It's little wonder that this vision of the multiverse has become so influential and such a compelling setting for RPG adventures. Much of the setting is implied rather than explicitly stated. It's a place that compels invention. In this episode, Lawrence Whitaker returns to face the Games Master screen to discuss the Eternal Champion, Strontium Dog, Mithras and more. Over recent weeks, we've commenced a short series of Hawkmoon adventures. In the Open Box section, I'm joined by Blythe, and we look at both the Chaosium Hawkmoon and the Mongoose RuneQuest version that appeared in 2007. We're still in the middle of a global pandemic, and we haven't seen each other in 15 weeks. So this bit has a bit of internet interference, but not too much. I call it Corona Pop. In First, Last and Everything, Doc Cowie shares the details of the first time he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him. Doc has been an enthusiastic, avuncular supporter of the Grognard Files for a long time and has contributed his Gen Con reports to the grognardfiles.com blog. His contribution here is a great call to arms to the Grog Squad. It might seem like a club, but everyone is welcome, including you. I'm sure you'll enjoy this piece. Blythe joins me in the virtual room of role-playing rambling for the first in an occasional series where we'll look at a couple of issues of vintage magazines plucked from the archive in the attic. I'll be back at the end with some news, updates and thanks to new patrons. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen. Welcome to the Games Master Screen. I've got Loz Whitaker back with me. Hello there, Loz. Thank you very much for having me back. I obviously didn't alienate too many people last time. It's a good sign. <laughs> so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to erect this uh, screen in front of us so I can hide my secret table. And I'm going to Look roll... Look the size of that. That is massive. I thought my GM screen was big. That's, that's like Neil Peart's drum kit. <laughs> uh, Two-minute silence. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's uh, roll on this uh, table, apparently at random. Go for it. Okay, first up, we have the Eternal Champion. Ooh, and, I, okay. uh, and I know that the Eternal Champion has had a, a core um, part of your gaming and your writing, so tell us a bit about that. Ah, uh, right. Uh, very big Michael Moorcock fan uh, since I don't know when. Um, 
specifically Elric. That was my my first love. But I'm very fond of uh, of the Hawk Moon trilogy and and Corum and uh, I think just about most of of his Eternal Champion works actually. Uh, so when Chaosium released the the Stormbringer role playing game, hugely excited. I, I tried sort of doing. Young Kingdoms Adventures with Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, never really that successful. But uh, to have finally a Stormbringer game that treated magic as it it should be, with with demons and elementals, just as they were described in the books, that was that's fantastic. So, I, uh, I I I got that in the very early eighties and played a heck of a lot of it. Now I I played a lot of uh, it back in, back in the day, um, but I lost tune on the trajectory of uh, what happened with that license with Chaosium after that because it did take other uh, permutations, didn't it? As um, Elric and uh, other editions. So how, how did that? They work? had the license for for quite a long time. I think it's certainly from the the very early eighties right through until about two thousand and. Seven, I think, was when it went over to to Mongoose. But yes, they they had the uh, the license to produce games based on on Moorcock's work. I think everything kind of went swimmingly for a, a little while, and then uh, there was a, a sadly some distrust between Moorcock and, and Chaosium um, over I think the, the 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 number of things that were being released. Uh, payments around royalties and all that stuff. I, I don't really want to dwell on all of that, but uh, Chaosium had the license for quite a while. Um, they produced Stormbringer in three editions in varying formats. Uh, they then produced a fourth edition, which was called Elric, and that was a a streamlining of the rules, and it was effectively rewritten by a different writing team. Stormbring was produced um, almost single-handedly by uh, Ken St. Andre. Um, Steve Perrin is credited with the rule systems, but I think um, I think Steve sort of tinkered with the rules to make it fit the the, the Young Kingdom's worldview and the, the way the books worked, but uh, Ken St. Andre did the bulk of the work around the setting and the ideas and so forth behind it. So that was kind of the first iteration of the game, went through a number of different sort of small revisions and format changes, box sets with one book, box set with three separate books, hardback book produced by Games Workshop. And it kind of puddled along at, at that pace with a, a few supplements, not many, but a few supplements that, uh, that supported it at sporadic intervals and a varying kinds of, of quality. Um, it then went through a, a sort of a change in the early to mid-1990s when a new creative team kind of came on. And they were Australian-based. Um, Mark Morrison, done a lot of work on Call of Cthulhu. Um, Richard Watts, again, a lot of Cthulhu work. Um, Nick Hager, again, Australian-based. Uh, he'd done a, a fair amount of Cthulhu stuff. Jeff Gillen, Australian. And big Moorcock fans. And they kind of reinvigorated the things. Um, largely at Richard Watts' instigation, he developed um, two supplements, one based around Pantang, and then one uh, a set of quite whimsical scenarios based in, in the Young Kingdoms. And they, they were actually closer to Moorcock's themes and atmosphere in terms of the stories. They were more around characters uh, being manipulated by fate 
and um, the, the gods of chaos and the forces at work in the young kingdoms rather than kind of being dungeon crawls, which is what some of the, the early Stormbringer scenarios were like. And that kind of led to redoing the system into it becoming Elric, which was a lot more streamlined. It abandoned um, a lot of the more fanciful things that Ken St. Andre had built into the background. And there'd also been a, a number of new Elric novels published in the time since the Stormbringer game came out and Elric appeared. So that material was worked into the new game. Uh, different approach to magic, which I didn't actually quite agree with the direction that they took. Uh, but it was actually a very nice, condensed, very playable rule set. And I enjoyed it hugely. Uh, so I was lucky enough to write some stuff for Stormbringer, its old incarnation, and then uh, a, a lot more stuff in its new in its new incarnation, which was Elric. And in between that, they released a Hawkmoon game as well, which mm. was another box set, not as good as Stormbringer. Um, and the the reason for that was the the writer of that box set, uh, Kiri Campbell. Uh, the, the legend has it that she left the finished manuscript in a taxi and it, on, on the way to, to posting it. Um, it was never found. She had to hastily rewrite it from scratch to, to meet a deadline. And so lots was left out. If you ever look at uh, the original Hawkman box set and compare it to the depth of Stormbringer, there's mm. a huge difference in, in quality there. And so you took it into... Um, <clears throat> the mongo situation didn't you were you were you overseeing that project no, not to begin with no the uh the the eternal champion license with chaosium kind of languished for for quite a long time and i'd, I'd kept saying to charlie crank you know when are we going to do this for Stormbringer? when can we release this and I, I was kind of supporting it through uh, uh my own website at the time uh, there was a, an attempt to create a sort of a fanzine called herald of doom Mm -hmm. uh, by some other Elric uh, aficionados that I contributed some some material to. But it, it was largely being kept alive through fan efforts. Uh, the Tentacles Convention in Germany, they produced a, f a fundraiser, and I produced scenarios based around Stormbringer and Hawkmoon for that. Uh, so it was kept largely going through fan efforts. And there was this bad blood with, with Michael Moorcock, and eventually I think uh, Chaosium just thought, it's really not worth the effort anymore. Um, Mongoose were producing a new edition of RuneQuest. They licensed it from Greg Stafford directly. The trademark for RuneQuest had gone back to Greg. <clears throat> he had a, a company called Isaris. They have the rights for RuneQuest. They licensed it to, to Mongoose. And Mongoose, at a convention that I was responsible for running at the time called Continuum in the UK, um, met up with Charlie Crank. Uh, Matthew Sprange and Charlie Crank were both there as guests, um, talking about, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I think it, it was there that it was decided to approach Moorcock and see if he would be okay with the license transferring from Chaosium to Mongoose. Um, that apparently went very well. And so they decided they were going to produce a new line based around the new RuneQuest rules. And that was given to a writer called um, Aaron Dembski-Bowden. Um, he didn't get very far with the Elric book before he moved on to work with uh, the people that were doing the Conan multiplayer online 
role-playing mm. game. They decided to recruit a, a new permanent writer. I applied for the job and got it. And Elric was the, the first assignment given to me, which is really weird to sort of come full circle. Yes. And yes. then and then be given a, a fresh Elric book to write. So I did, and I went right back to basics. I I dug out all the all the novels, read all of them again. Um, I enlisted my my good friend Pete Nash to help with the magic system. He went through every instance of magic in every Elric book, and we worked out how demons really work, how the elementals really work, and sort of rebuilt magic to better reflect the stories, uh, we made sure that the canon matched where it could with with the uh, the books as well, and incorporated things like some of the graphic novels that had come out. So yeah, I, I, I took over the, the custodianship of, of the Elric gaming line when I moved to Mongoose and had a lot more kind of creative control over it. With that and with the new game at Leoness, you've stuck with the uh, percentile-based um, system. Is that because it's your preference or is that just uh, it's the legacy of your gaming experience? It's a bit of both. Um, it's the legacy of my gaming experience, definitely. Um, but I haven't found anything that I haven't been able to do with with the the d100 system basic role playing based system that that you know I, I could do better with something else so i know the system very very well i know what its tolerances are i know how to make it work to do different things uh, so it's a bit of legacy but it's also a bit about the fact that the d percentile mechanics are very very flexible they're very forgiving and you can do a lot with them and it, it was just a natural extension of what i'd already been doing to, to carry on with that. I, I think we've we've covered in the podcast previously, there's always that uh, difficulty, as you've mentioned, about making magic work and somehow the percentile uh, system, that, that's that's where it, it gets challenged, isn't it? Because of it, trying to compare it to a skill. I, I find it interesting in um, Mithras how you tackle that challenge in different ways. The, the I, th- I think the, the secret is not to treat magic as something that just buffs skills. That's the core to it. Um, Of course, the the mechanism is skill-based. You have a spell skill and you've got to roll equal to or unto it to have the spell cast. That's fine. But the effect of the skill, uh, sorry, the effect of the spell, the way that the magic works, if you just make it buff a characteristic or give X percent bonus to the skill, that's dull, that's boring, that's not what magic's about. It's about creating a memorable effect. So very much the design philosophy that we we had with the Elric magic and also with the magic in Leoness was to produce something that doesn't buff skills. It does something unique, specific, and magical. Uh, and so we've tried to thread that design philosophy through everything that we've done. And uh, that that's certainly in evidence in the Mithras core rules and the way that we've approached magic there. Excellent. Let's uh, go back to the uh, to table. This is one of your projects that's very close to my heart because I've, I've used this an awful lot, and that's the Strontium Dog supplement that you did for Mongoose. Oh, that's going back. It's got to be 10 years since I did anything with Strontium Dog. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what, what can we say about Strontium Dog? It's uh, that, that was a real labor of love. And that was done for Mongoose again. They had the, the license from Rebellion to uh, certainly produce the Judge Dredd um, RPG and uh, Strontium Dog as well. And I worked on both of those um, in their traveler incarnations. So the idea there was that we would take the traveler rules and apply them to the comic book settings of 2000 AD. 
uh, first was Dread and actually had a, a huge amount of fun with, with Judge Dread. And a lot of what I did to develop Dread for the Traveller rules were actually carried over into, into Strontium Dog as well. And really the key to Strontium Dog is, one, stupid mutations. Mm-hmm. Um, people with faces in their kneecap. Um, things, you know, arms growing out the top of their head, but still have them as playable and uh, treat them um, in kind of a respectful way, but also as the parodies that they really are. And second, get that that real spaghetti Western vibe running through everything that you do. Uh, Strontium Dog is, is a, a spaghetti Western in, in space. That's yeah. exactly the exactly. way to make it. Yeah. And so I think once you get those two elements sort of working in, in concert, you can have a lot of fun with it. So, um, very much the, uh, the the approach with with Strontium Dog was to again go back, read all the comics, um, get the flavour and understand how everything works together, get the mutation and character creation rules in place, um, get the weird planets documented, the bizarre weapons. You know, time bombs and time drogues and electronux and all these wonderful, ridiculous gadgets that, that Johnny Alpha has to play with and, and put them into workable game terms. And that was actually a massive challenge, designing a, a blaster that one will fire seven or eight different kinds of cartridge and two, get a blaster that can actually fire through someone harmlessly and yet detonate into someone else, probably while being walked through time and space at the same time. Uh, that, that was quite difficult to do. Yeah, it's quite difficult with the uh, Traveller because uh, the rule set is quite on the nose, isn't it? You know, it's uh, difficult yeah, uh, to very do much. that. Yeah, very um, much. I've used the supplement with uh, Savage Worlds, um, but just use the framework that you provide and the tables um, to uh, build adventures. Because I, I really like how you use tables um, to not only generate character, but to generate story. Yeah, the background tables for the, the life path generation, that, that was a sort of an extension of what I did with Judge Dredd because uh, Traveller's always had a life path character generation thing. You know, your mm-hmm. character starts here, go, joins a, a service, uh, demobs after so many years, comes out with all these skills, money, and so forth. With, with Judge Dredd, different angle you're, you're you're a five-year-old put through the academy of justice and you're turned into this 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 law machine um after you know what 15 years of, of dedicated training so i built a life path that would take you through all the formative years of, of justice training to create a street judge and that was very much what we did with strontium dog as well you create your mutated character and then you go through certain background events that determine what happened to you before you became a a bounty hunter, then what did you do when you were a bounty hunter? What kinds of missions did you go on? What foes did you make? Um, what were you exposed to? What weird things happened before you even begin playing? And unlike traditional traveler where your character could actually die before you started playing, we just sort of fudged it so that bad things would happen, but you'd come out alive at the end of it. And uh, that's kind of the genesis behind that. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay, let's go. Let's the table. Oh, that's a that's a critical hit. That and um, oh, no. a, a critical hit for you is uh, must be uh, Mithras because that's the uh, game line that you've uh, developed and you publish. And uh, you must be proud of the um, volumes of supplements that are now available for that system. 
Yeah, there's over 30 of them. God knows how we got that many. Um, luck, I think, more than anything else. Uh, yeah, Mithras is, is kind of the culmination of, oh, gosh, uh, 15 years' work for, for Pete Nash and myself. Um, we were talking about D100 mechanics and how they've kind of been a, a real theme of, uh, of what I've done over the years. And you know, it, it's true for Pete as well. You know, we're, we're both sort of died in the wool BRP fans. We, we played lots of RuneQuest, lots of Stormbringer, and lots of the, the Chaosium family of games. And I've been fortunate enough to be involved at you know, many sort of crucial stages in the evolution of those games with Chaosium, with Mongoose, and, and now with, with my own company. Um, so, yeah, I think Mithras is the development of uh, a lot of uh, different iterations of, of the D100 system, refining it, playtesting different things, bringing a different kind of philosophy to it. And we, we've honed the approach and the distillation of that is, is definitely Mithras as it stands. And actually, at, at the moment, there's a question on, our, on the design mechanism forums about you know, what would it take for... Uh, a second edition of Mithras, you know, what what would what would would go in there, and I was kind of reflecting on how to answer that, and I thought, you know, we've actually got the rules exactly where we want them. We're very happy with how they are. There's nothing that we really want to change now um, to do anything differently or, or kind of improve them. We certainly don't want change for change's sake. There would have to be a very very good reason to alter the way that w- the rules work. Um, so yeah, we are genuinely happy with where we've got the rules to now that might not be shared by everybody but as game designers for pete and i and um you know the co-owners of the company we're very comfortable with where we are we don't see a a need to go off and change things just for the sake of change i think that's a sensible uh, approach and um, we first started this podcast uh, five years ago actually this year and at that time, we were rediscovering um, the things what, that we enjoyed before we stopped playing. But one of the first things that we found was uh, RuneQuest 6, as it was then, Mithras. And mm-hmm. um, we did think it kind of answered all the questions that we always had about the D100 system. It's a perfect presentation of it. What's the plan going forward for um, Mithras and the Mithras line? keep on what we're doing really we've got a very healthy pipeline of uh, supplements for the next two two years um the mythras line kind of breaks down into things that interest us little projects like luther arkwright uh, we have a luther arkwright supplement because we're big brian talbot fans you know what Luther Arkwright's a very much a, a very niche game he's not really known outside of the uk uh, but we like him so we do lots of Luther Arkwright together. We played a Luther Arkwright campaign at Pete's just last month. Um, Pete's writing some Luther Arkwright scenarios right now in between finishing off Mythic Greece. Then we've got our Mythics range, which are um, very deliberately um, historical fantasy supplements based uh, in different um, historical genres. So we have uh, Mythic Britain covered, which is Dark Ages Britain. Um, we have Rome that Pete wrote, which is set during the, the Republic rather than the Empire. Mythic Constantinople, which is set at the fall of the city. Um, later this year or early next year, we will have Mythic Babylon joining that. That's all written, edited, and getting its artwork assigned. And that will be a big, big book. Delves really deeply into uh, Babylonian culture, myth, 
uh, Gilgamesh, all those those great Mesopotamian heroes and stories. Uh, Mythic Polynesia uh, by Mark Shirley. Um, I've got a proposal for a Mythic Venice book sitting oh, on wow. my, my desk at the moment. So we've got a very healthy pipeline for the Mythics range. We, we love doing those. Uh, they're, they're, they're very popular. They're, they consistently sell well. Um, they're always well-researched, and we've got a good cadre of writers that, uh, that work with us on those. Um, and then we have kind of the... The fantasy side of things, uh, classic fantasy is very much a D&Dization of, um, of the Mithras rules. So how can you play it with the traditional class archetypes of fighter, magic user, thief, or rogue, mm-hmm. whatever, uh, cleric, and so on? Um, how can you do introduce a sort of a level-based structure into that game and still it be recognizably a skill-driven D100 system? And classic, classic fantasy is is pretty popular too um it's a good alternative we think to to dnd nothing wrong with dnd at all i'm playing in a dnd campaign myself at the moment um but it's a sort of a different take on things so we we've got some uh, new content for classic fantasy coming out later this year or again early next year and then little sort of side projects that we have uh one of our upcoming releases the straight after leoness will be a book called fiora cheetah which is a, a fantasy city inspired by the uh, the Italian city-states. Uh, it's very much based around Florence um, or Milan, around the early Renaissance period, but with a very, very, very heavy fantasy twist to it. And uh, we've got another couple of books similar to that sort of lined up as well. So we kind of fall into those those three or four areas when we're, we're developing things. So does uh, Pete live locally and you still play together? Oh, Christ, no, no. No, I'm, I'm in Canada and, and Pete lives in the very, very far north of Sweden. He's about uh, 60 miles short of the Arctic Circle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're very, very remote. Yeah. So do, do you play um, online or do you connect? <clears throat> Pete plays online two or three times a week. Um, I do not play online anywhere as much as I used to, partly due to bandwidth restrictions. Um, I, I live in a sort of uh, Hicksville, Ontario, and uh, the internet connections around here are not very good. We, we all celebrated when we got 25 megabits per second. Previously, <laughs> we only had five megabits per second. And it's just not sustainable for online gaming. You know, it, it would crash constantly. Just having a Skype conversation with one person would be taxing the system. Um, with now this wonderfully fast 25 megabits per second, I hear the audience crippling themselves with laughter. It's probably a bit more feasible to do some online gaming, but I've kind of shied away from it for that reason. But I'm also lucky in that I've got uh, a regular group of players that, that come around to my house every couple of weeks, and so we play face-to-face. And uh, you know, as I get older and free time becomes more premium, that's probably enough for me. Yeah. But I am wanting to do some online gaming, given that everyone is currently self-isolating. Uh, and there's a couple of... I, I've promised... Um, Ian Wilson and his group that uh, do our Mithras podcast and a lot of Mithras YouTube videos, uh, that I would run a game of Leoness for them. So I'm intending to play test a, a scenario that I'm just finishing writing um, with them, hopefully in the the, uh, the the very near future. 
Oh, that sounds great. And if you've got a spare spot on there, you know, <laughs> well, thank you very much, Loz. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you. And to you, thanks very much indeed. And stay happy, healthy and sane. Open box. Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to go forwards to look how the gaming of the past can inform our today. I was going to do this alone, walking the moonbeam road to the eternal champion, trying to alleviate the sense of doom, but I've got a companion with me. He's probably come with his side quest and a novelty hat. Hello, Blythey. Hello, Dirk. <laughs> novelty hat? You wear hats, I don't like them. If if they've not got hats, they're usually bald, aren't they? In Moorcock. Bald pit. That's it. I remember distinctly that you had the addition of the jewel in the skull with the lurid green skeleton on the front with a it, it was a bit on the nose, wasn't it? It was a jewel in the skull on the front. The jewel in the skull that always reminded me of the opening credits to uh Tales of Unexpected. You were very enthusiastic about it because you said, read this, it's better than Elric. Yeah, I, I think the reason for that is because it, it hangs together better. I mean, it, it was written. I mean, I know there's all sorts of stories, isn't there, about it? You know, it was written over a weekend when he had the flu and he had a bottle of scotch on the go. Oh, there's all those kind of stories about it. But um, it hangs together better because it was written as a series of books. So there's a kind of consistency to it and a narrative flow that you don't you don't get in Elric because there are some Elric novels that it's short stories and hawk moon hangs together in the same way that i think uh, quorum does as well the quorum stories are the same aren't they? they they hang together as a series of novels that you can read one after the other and they tell a story and they are chronological and all those kind of things whereas elric elric isn't elric short yeah. story here short story there as a central character though a dorian hawk moon isn't as compelling or as interesting as elric but yeah no, you're right the, no. the, the stories are more uh, compelling aren't they they're more interesting well he's more yeah he's more uh, 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 he's more a traditional hero isn't he so yeah you're right he is he is less compelling than uh, than elric but that said uh, I think the world of Hawkmoon is better. The world is, again, there's consistency, isn't there, in the world? Yeah, it's slightly more, he feels like he's got slightly more weight to it, I think. Yeah. You know, more, yeah. Slightly more purpose as, as a world that works and, in, and countries interacting with each other and, and different, those kind of things, I think. I think that's why it's appealing as a role-playing setting. And although we didn't have the Hawkmoon RPG, we played a lot of Stormbringer, and I seem to remember that, you use some elements of the world in your Dragon Quest game. There's something appealing about the feudal uh, medieval Europe feel and also the collision between um, science and fantasy. Yeah, and also just, just the fact, I remember when I first read it, just the fact that, that Great Britain, or Grand Britain as it's called, are, are the villain. I, I like that because, uh, and you know, um, going back to it now, uh, Grand Britain, they're unequivocally evil, aren't they? they you know, they're morally <laughs> reprehensible. Fairly, fairly, unre- fairly unredeemable. I, I can remember reading reading the, the novels and, and being confronted with this idea that Great Britain, that the country where I live in the future, is full of depraved maniacs. I, I can remember reading the first couple of novels, looking for, I think, looking for redeeming features. Oh, maybe it's maybe all is not as it seems. Maybe it's a bit like uh, Melnibone, you know, and that. They're depraved, but there will be some good guys there. About no, not really, not really, not at all. And I think what makes it fun and safe is the idea, you know, particularly because like uh, post-colonialism has become a hot topic, mm. hasn't it? Of, of late, companies like Wizards have had to speak out about, you know, how the oppressed have 
being a signifier of difference and evil and how mm. we need to rethink that. Um, that's what's great about Grand Britain because of uh, because it is Great Britain and we were the oppressors. That you know, it's good. That it's it's it feels more reassuring sometimes. The other appealing thing about uh, Grand Britain is the fact that they wear masks. That's how they differentiate differentiate themselves in uh, different uh, cults, if you like, or different uh, regiments yeah. uh, and orders. Yes. That's that that's a, a really nice touch to it. You know, the Order of the Serpents, who are the sorcerers, and the uh, yeah. Order of the Wolves. Melodius the uh, leader of the uh, wolves is a particularly good character in the novels. He's a really good enemy. He's a good baddie. He's, he's good at arch villains, isn't he? With Moorcock, people often focus on because he has the eternal champion. People focus on the eternal champion, so they focus on Elric and Hawkmoon and Jerry Cornelius and Coram and Erekos as well, isn't it? They focus on these, but they forget sometimes. He, he has some fantastic villains, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he does do villains very, very well. Okay, let's have a look at um, uh, role playing game then. I can't, I, th- I can't think why we never had it because Sweet Stormbringer. I can't remember seeing it for sale. No, I think I think it came later, so it came in eighty six, and mm. we probably moved on a bit then. And it would it'd, yeah, been, it'd been expensive. Yeah. It was expensive. I mean, the cover yes. is fantastic. I mean, that uh, Frank Brunner portrait. Yeah. Of uh, Hawkman. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we managed to resist that cover, but there you go. And it's. Uh, well, I, I, genu- I, I genuinely don't think we, we saw it much. I think if we'd seen it in a shop, like we used to, going to Games Workshop and seen it on a shelf, I think one of us would have, you know, saved up or got it for Christmas or, but, you know, one of. But I, I, I don't remember seeing I don't generally don't remember seeing it for sale, as in here it is on a shelf for purchase. I don't, I don't remember that. Hotman Science and Sorcery in Earth's Far Future. And it's by uh, Kerry Campbell Robson. And uh, you get three books in it. Um, the player book, the Games Master book, and a rather flimsy science book and uh, a great map, which is on my wall. Yeah. It's a nice map, I'll give you that, yeah. Uh, and they liked it so much that they use it an awful lot throughout the booklets, uh, the map, because... Yeah. I think, as uh, Loz mentions in the uh, interview that we have, the manuscript went missing. It was actually stolen um, before the deadline. Really? Yeah, yeah. So um, they had to hastily, she had to hastily rewrite it and redo it from scratch. So to get it, wow. as well as the world, it's the, it's the game. It's a complete game. It uses Stormbringer as its uh, basis. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Well, it's, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it is It is the same as Stormbringer, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, the settings, one or two skills are different, but it's essentially Stormbringer, which is which is nice because you can you can do the old Eternal Champion thing, can't you? Switch people around from one of the Young Kingdoms to, you know. Yeah, and it does encourage Europe, that, doesn't you, it? Do yeah, 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 which is nice, yeah. a nice thing, I think. Yeah. Because there's um, Stimbot 5000 of um, Breakfast in the Ruins podcast uh, pointed out, um, there are a couple of stories um, where they meet each other, or at least it's the same meeting. So in Sailor and Caesar Fay, Elric meets uh, Hawkmoon, and Hawkmoon mm. recounts it in a later story in the Count Brass series. And it's That's quite right. good because yeah. you get um, the perspectives of each other. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah. different perspectives of yeah, 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 yeah. It's always it's always one of the great things in Morcott. I always like that 
when they met each other. It's like the old Doctor Who episodes where he meets one of his old incarnations. They're always good. You can't you can't beat them. Well, you know the reaction between them, that kind of thing. They're essentially the same person, but just in a different a different form. Which is good. I think um, overall, as uh, as a game, it does suffer from. Once you know that story that they lost the manuscript, it explains a lot because mm. in uh, in places it's a bit thin. And it uses a few uh, techniques to fill the space, such as giving you lots and lots of character sheets. And um, there's a bit where the font size suddenly increases to like 24 points. And at the moment, I'm homeschooling my son, and he tries pulling that one when you write in an essay. <laughs> we've, we've all, we've all, I think we all tried that. Yeah, we've all done that you, know, <laughs> you mentioned the word processor and font size. It's just like, yeah, yeah just a point up. Look, it looks so much more. But do you know what? That's interesting, though, isn't it? That it was stolen. Do you not think that is that is that the greatest role-playing crime? I think there's an adventure in it, isn't there? If you could retrieve the original manuscript of Hawkmoon. Yeah, I wonder where. I wonder where it is. Who stole yeah. it? What happened? What a strange thing! What a strange thing to steal. There are there are some nice touches um, to this. I think um, the gazetteer is um, quite well done. It's, it's, it's got, mm. it, I mean, we're going to look at some of the later stuff from uh, Mongoose. And the thing that you say about this one is that it's quite characterful, isn't it? It's, um, you know, it it doesn't go over the top on um, the implied setting that Morcock creates, but it gives you enough little nuggets to build characters yeah. from those locations. It does, yeah, it does, does the kind of thing Dornbringer does. It, it, it captures the, I think it captures the spirit of it as well. The novels, I think, in the world. When I, when I read it, I thought, "Oh yeah, I want I want to play this." It's it's kind of reminded me of, of this world and these characters and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, and it, look, there's a couple of adventures in there, and they, they're actually all right. You know, you could yeah, pick yeah, them up yeah. and run them, and I've, I've fun with them. And it's uh, and as well, it's an easy. It's an easy version of basic role playing, isn't it? Like Stormbreaker has various bits and pieces added on, like major wounds and all those kind of things. But it's a nice, easy system, isn't it? I, I sometimes wonder, it's like a basic role playing. I sometimes wonder the more the more the system is cranked up and becomes non-basic, basic role playing. I'm not entirely convinced it necessarily always benefits from that. And I think the, it is it's, it's balanced quite right. It's basic role playing. But it has one or two interesting rules that will make it a little bit more fun. There's there's a couple of areas that um, I wanted more on, and um, both of them. We're going to have a look at the mongoose um, version and, and this version. Both of them render the the science into something practical. If you read the novels, the Grand Breton technology is weird and unsettling. And disturbing, yeah, uh, and that's part of it. What makes it intriguing, whereas the game has kind of rendered it into something like a, a magical items list. It should subscribe to the um, is it the Arthur C. Clarke statement that basically any any technology that people can't understand is essentially magic. You know, which is you know the, the kind of thing that's used in Numenera, isn't it? Um, the idea that in in Heartmoon, it's science, but it's it's so far advanced and so weird that it would appear like magic or sorcery, but it but it's not. It's science, and I think I think there is a, a line in the, the the source books that talks about you know most people 
in the world, in, in the Hawk Moon's world, wouldn't encounter science. They wouldn't encounter any of this stuff, nor would they understand it. And so it would appear like sorcery. And I, I know what you mean. In, in the original game, it, it is a little bit too sciencey. You know, these are machines. Yeah, look, yes. here's a machine. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a machine, but it's also wouldn't appear as a machine to the people of that world. It would appear like a magical thing. An ornithopter to a bunch of peasants in Espania would appeal, appear like a magical thing, wouldn't it? Not a machine. One of the machines that feature in the first novel is the mentality machine, which they use mm. to uh, change the brain state and uh, delve into the heads of um, people, or the victims, mm. if you like. But the way that it's described in, uh, in, in the novel is very fleshy and very full of barbs and, uh, mm. you know, and horrible yeah. tendril type things. Whereas in here, it's just rendered as a, a, a large device into which a subject is placed. Uh, wires painlessly <laughs> yeah. penetrate the skull and the brain. You know, and it does yeah. sound like a, an MMR scanner, a CAT scanner or something Yeah, like yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, like a device with wires. And you think, oh, no, it's not like that in a novel. It's like an organic thing, isn't it? Like, yeah. it's almost in place t- at times the science has, has gone from machines to kind of cybernetic stuff that's almost living kind of yes. stuff. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. It doesn't doesn't quite convey that. I've um, it, when I've been doing this uh, scenario, I've kind of taken my uh, inspiration from like existence, you know, and Cronenberg. Um, but in in fairness, though, do you not think I think science fantasy in a role playing game is kind of can be one of the hardest things to to do really well. It's hard to do well, isn't it? Science fantasy because science science is all right. It's a big spaceship, look, sliding doors, laser guns, you know, you can get away with that. Fantasy's all right because it's swords and sorcery, but science fantasy is is difficult. It is a difficult thing. It requires a lot of skill on the part of the games master to create the right kind of atmosphere and the right kind of descriptions of these things that, that somehow bridge the gap between hard science fiction and traditional swords and sorcery. This is a difficult trick, isn't it? You know, uh, Eddie also got me the Shattered Isle, which uh, came a bit later, and this is uh, a supplement for the Eternal Champion series, and it takes the form of a scenario. But what this does uh, quite well is that it develops the idea of the Grand Breton uh, orders a bit more. That's right. More yeah, it gives you the list of yeah, the list of the orders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, because they're only in a table in the uh, main book, um, you know, and it says it's the games master should feel free to make up their own. All right, okay, but in this uh, shattered eye, <laughs> yeah, it gives you something to it work never cross your mind, did it? That never cross yeah. your mind, you know. <laughs> but again, again, in this, I mean, it there's some good uh, bits and pieces, and I've used elements of it, but. Um, Again, it's fairly mundane, the science that you encounter in this, um, but it does make a big play of the mutants. So I think uh, through the 90s, uh, when uh, Elric um, became replaced Stormbringer, I think later on, uh, we've got uh, Jason Durrell coming on next time, and KRCM had plans to develop the line more and make it more of an eternal champion a series with Jerry Cornelius mm. and uh, some of the others, like A. Cross, as you say. Um, but it never it never happened. 
So I think it was later when the license passed on to Mongoose that we see a new Hawk Moon based on the rune quest mm-hmm. rules that they had. Uh, and if you remember, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan said that he did it during a scuba diving holiday. Um, so you've got a copy of this, haven't you? You had a look at this. I've had a look at that. Yes, yes, yes. It's a bit lacklustre, isn't it? Despite its best efforts. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I wasn't too keen on was, again, going back to the, the uh, science. It turns science into sorcery, doesn't it? So it, it seems, on the face of it, to take the science fantasy thing and translate it into a system of sorcery. That, that then made me think, well, it's just like fantasy then, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just like a fantasy game now, isn't it? Because you're saying, oh, well, you've got this sorcery, but it's all scientifically powered. Yeah, all right, but, but now it just feels like sorcery, you know. I mean, it has more, it, it, to its credit, I think it has more depth and detail about the setting in it. It does, know? yeah. It does, have, it does have more detail, which you can, you can use, but uh, I'm not entirely convinced well, one of the other things it does that i didn't like it takes away the uh the thing that hawk moon the kcm version and Stormbringer does is it gives you um depending on where you're from in the young kingdoms or in hawk moon's world it gives you bonuses on your statistics doesn't it bonuses and reductions which i remember when we played Stormbringer, and the same would have been true of hawk moon we always enjoyed that nation and got adjustments on your stats and i don't think the mongoose one does that does it it gives you certain skill bonuses but it doesn't affect your statistics in the same way no it doesn't the gaza, the gazetteer um is quite comprehensive as you say but it doesn't contribute mm. to your um, character creation but what it does do is give lots of uh scenario hooks a good there's some good stuff in there but i think the way yeah. that the uh, the mechanics and the system works is quite um, pedestrian it, it squeezes the life out of it a little bit. I think I know what you mean. It does, and that, that goes back to what I was saying about the, the original Heart Moon. It, that system is simple, straightforward. It's got Kenton Andrew written all over it, hasn't it? You know, just just get on with it, get into it, that kind of thing. It being um, Gareth Ryder Hanran, there are some uh, good things in it, though. Good games master material mm. in it. And um, yeah. first off, it gives you core activity for what people can do within the Heart Moon world. If you get these already, you can start designing ideas. So you can either have a lord and his retinue, mercenaries, tomb raiders and scholars, agents of a court, thieves, and this is my favourite here, agents of the rune staff. Now, that's quite bold, yeah. isn't it, to make uh, yeah. a, a group of characters agents of the rune staff doing its bidding and yeah. Um, yeah. creating balance across the world. Well, there is, you're right, it, that's too. T- to its credit, that's the great thing about the mongoose one. There is there is a lot more. It's kind of far more bulkier in terms of describing the world and giving you ideas and that kind of thing. You could, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have both of them, you just use them in tandem, can't you? You can use the old KCM system and use all the ideas out of the mongoose version. Um, another little call-out box that I like as well um, is uh, the idea of a wormwood. So after the tragic millennium, uh, the wilderness reclaimed much of the land of Europe. It's created these kind of deserts, these strange places, these wormwoods. Um, it, they don't appear in the uh, in, in the novels. It's just something created. It's just in a car light box. This, this is about 200 words, but this is where your adventures are, isn't it? Because it says, uh, mm. that's not to say that wormwood uh, empty. 
quite the opposite. They writhe with unnatural, twisted life. Trees drip bulbous, green-glowing maggots and scream at the dawn. Three-headed wolves hunt in the <laughs> undergrowth, pushing through strange, poisonous plants that shiver a thousand colours down their leaves and spit venom when disturbed. Fantastic. Let's get there. That's good. <laughs> That's where you want. <laughs> That's where you're going. But you've got you've got the, you've got this uh, this pretty big book that is just a box in it. You know that that's that's where the yeah. adventure is. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've got to kind of look through it, and yeah, but yeah. it does it does have good bits in it. I mean, you know. So I've been um, we've been playing the game, haven't we? We've been uh, running it. I, I've been running it online, and um, there's a couple of things I've decided to use Mithras, an iteration of RuneQuest, isn't it? If you follow that mm. um, yeah. line through Mongoose. Uh, to the uh, design mechanism it is quite a clunky it's quite a crunchy system isn't it and it takes a bit of getting used to i think even if you've played it before uh, it kind of reminding yourself about things because it's 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 not just RuneQuest; it's like RuneQuest and then some isn't it with all the kind of combat moves and combat effects and all that kind of thing but once you get into it it does it does work and it again it makes combat sort of colorful and interesting because there's so many things you can do in a combat round and, and a lot of it is familiar. What I like about it is the, the look rules for Mithras give you quite a bit of options, particularly in a game where fate is important and destiny and that kind of thing. It feels yeah, like yeah. the look and you using the look points to change events are very significant. And the fact that mm. on your party you've got somebody who's like an agent of the rune staff and can summon luck sometimes um <laughs> sometimes yeah not always um it, it it makes it makes it more interesting i think it works really well with this setting and i like with the look rule as well i do like the fact that a look point can give you a reroll which is very conventional but what it can also do is let you reverse the result yeah so if you roll a 91 you can spend a look roll and make it a 19 can't you yeah and which it, which feels which which you know what I like about that it feels it feels more like luck and fate because it's a little bit like if you rolled a ninety one you can reverse it to a nineteen but if you rolled an eighty nine almost like fate's telling you you're doomed to fail because you can't an eighty nine can only reverse to a ninety eight so yes. it's useless and I, I do like that I think it's a neat very neat rule because it Rather than just a re-roll, it feels like the hand of fate. And uh, they also, it does other things, doesn't it, Look, So it can absorb injuries. It can mm. uh, force your opponent to re-roll. I do like how the look rules work, and I do think mm. it's very fitting in uh, Hawkmoon. I have really enjoyed going back to uh, the tragic millennium. I think, you know, as a post-apocalyptic setting, it's really good as well, because normally you're playing a bunch of primitives, aren't you, with... Some form <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. of goofy mutations. Yeah. Yeah. In the con in the context of this, or like one of the party, one of your party is like a result of an experimentation, so got a bit of orangutan in them. But yeah. it doesn't feel like mutant year zero, does it? it doesn't feel no, like No, no, no. It feels more in a weird way, more convincing because yeah, there's these mad scientists with the weird fantastical science. So the idea that they could have done that to a human is is almost almost convincing that that's believable, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I say it's post-apocalyptic, but it's not scrabbling round in the ruins. 
you know, in a way, yeah. it's like a a grand, a post-apocalyptic, but this kind of grand, elaborate civilization has risen up out of the ashes, you know. Yeah. And it, I think we've mentioned this many times uh, in conversations that is it like Ken Haidt? He says, "Start with Earth," you know, yeah. with fantasy stuff. Start with Earth, and, and when you look at um, the tragic millennium, it you think, yeah, it, it's good, isn't it? Because it's fantasy and it's weird fantasy, but there's bits of it that are, that are recognizable there, you know, Europe. So you, you do know what these countries are. You do know, although they're, they're very different now, but you do know what people might sound like and look like and maybe some still some cultural traditions still exist, that kind of thing. So it has, it's always weird and far-flung and, and, and very sort of high fantasy and high science fantasy. It is rooted in something familiar, which is a nice is a nice thing, isn't it? You know, it's not just yeah. a load of random wiggly lines on a map dri- divided up into make-believe countries. It adds and something to it, that, I think. Before we go, we've also got to mention that uh, in the game that we're playing at the moment, you are playing a Grand Breton character. You are I am. a I prisoner am. of Espanian <laughs> agents who are vital to their mission and they subdued you. Mm. And uh, you're a member of the Order of the Mall, an engineer who's uh, mm. in their thrall. How's that been yes. playing that? Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. Croydon. Croydon the Mall. It's good fun, isn't it, to be? I'd be a prisoner. Well, I think, I think we've now decided, haven't we, that... He's sedated, but more than the sedation, it's the fact that they've managed to, interrogation, they've managed to get a a dark secret out of him that um, if the Grand Bretons found out, they would execute him. So he has a a vested interest in complying because he doesn't want them to reveal his secret. Yes. But whether uh, he will comply to the bitter end is another matter. (laughs) And we managed to uh, manage that through the passions and mm. uh, at the moment, your passion for loyalty to Grand Breton is suppressed, and uh, you've got yes. some loyalty to Espana. Yeah. But that might change. Although one of my one of my one of my passions, of course, as well, is save my own skin. Yeah. I mean, you could argue it's everyone's passion, but particularly my character's. So, yeah, yeah, maybe he would maybe betray betray Grand Breton to save his own skin, definitely, <laughs> or maybe betray the rest of them to save his own skin. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love uh, I love Hot Moon. We're going to play more of it. Thanks a lot, Blythe. All right. Thanks, Doug. Hello. My name is Andrew Cowie, but given the excessive numbers of Andrews in the Grog Generation, I'm often known as Doug. I've been playing for a long time now. I did have a deep freeze, but it only lasted a year. Long enough to persuade my wife to be, I was relatively normal, and then I could get back to my second love, role-playing games. My first, like for so many others, is Dungeons and Dragons. I was nine, and by great good fortune, my best friend Steve's father was American. Somehow a copy of the Holmes Dungeons and Dragons set arrived, and I was invited over to play. At the back of the B1 module was a list of characters to select, apparently at random using a 12-sided dice, and so Crago of the Mountains, Cracky the Hooded One, Estra Zoe, and Trebolos, Boy Magician, headed into the caverns of Quasqueton, and, you know, I can't remember exactly what happened, but there were mushrooms and magic pools and whatever the heck a bugbear was. Predictably, we were captivated, though within a week or so I remember our first of many arguments. Steve had put a purple worm on the first level of the dungeon, 
which I think we can all agree was a betrayal of the trust placed in the DM, or perhaps the earliest example of a snowflake unable to handle the OSR. We alternated DMing happily, but my father was not impressed, deriding it as American nonsense. I thought I had him when I pointed out the frontispiece of the rules that made it clear it was a fantastic medieval role-playing adventure game, so actually it was British and very traditional. I didn't manage to persuade him, but he did buy a lot of Games Workshop shares with his retirement money, as they have apparently gone up about 6,000% in value. At least one of us has made money from gaming. Steve and I kept playing together until one fateful day in the school library, when I heard two boys in the same year, though a different class, discussing orcs. Naively, I attempted to join in the conversation, but was unexpectedly forced to prove myself. How much damage does a mace do? How many hit points does a magic user have? I nearly blew it forever, because Steve and I had never grokked the difference between hit points and hit dice, and my explanation that hobgoblins, with their 1 plus 1 hit dice, could take one point of damage, and then you needed to hit them again for another point of damage, led to furious contempt. To play with the others, we got the player's handbook, the softback version, which fell apart under constant scrutiny, though I still have it lovingly transferred to a ring binder. Our shop back in the day was Gains Unlimited in Kingston, a tiny wee place with an upstairs like a game hoarder's attic, though eventually we discovered Games Workshop Dalling Road, where we hung out like limpets. We had so many exciting, if sometimes antagonistic, adventures over the next few years, until the discovery of a rather different and more realistic game in Games Workshop led to us abandoning Dungeons & Dragons for a good while. Shout out to my friends and gaming companions over the past 40 years, Steve, Ed, Gaz, Dave and Paul. The planned next 5th edition session in Yorkshire may have been stymied by the Covid plague, but the King's friends will adventure again. My last... Well, as of today, the answer is Liminal, the lovely game about a more mystical modern Britain by Paul Michener. It's run by the boundlessly enthusiastic Steve Ray, and over the past six months, we've delved into what happens when Saxon artefacts and Nordic eschatology collide with lycanthropes, fae, and the undead. My bumbling old codger, Sir Montague Proctor Beauchamp, has watched in distress as his long and mostly happy life has been torn apart by invaders from China, vampiric rather than viral. But in exchange he has got to know a river spirit, a cockney geezer, a cursing monk, and a piebald half-fay who runs an occult AI database. If there are any silver linings in this current unpleasantness, one may be that if you look up some of the most creative people in the country with spare time, a library of RPGs, and online role-playing tools, you get a feast of gaming that is utterly unparalleled. There are games every night, and we are limited by work, and family, more than lack of opportunity. My last game happened to be liminal, but it could have been Dungeon Crawl Classics, Mutant Year Zero, The One Ring, Heart, Punk Apocalyptic, Morrow Project, or so many others. The variety is extraordinary, and I find myself enjoying modern indie games as much as overlooked games from the 80s. Truly, we are in a golden age. My Everything My Everything is not so much a game as a world. Glorantha. My first encounter was at Games Unlimited in Kingston. I had the player's handbook and the monster manual. Cults of Prax? RuneQuest? Ah, that's that game that was in White Dwarf with those trollkin with the silly names. They looked pretty complicated, but I was 12 now. I played advanced Dungeons & Dragons. I could handle it. I couldn't handle it. Though I loved the travels of Baturian Vitosh and read the cult histories over and over, I couldn't understand what sort of world could produce this. And then, later that year, the Games Workshop RuneQuest appeared and blew our minds. The William Church maps are still my favourite ever. 
I even coloured them in, and a modernised version is currently acting as a bedspread as Mrs Doc spoils me during lockdown. But we didn't know what to do with it. It's too huge, too complex. What if we broke it? And then I bought Griffin Mountain and Steve bought Pavis. We started our campaigns the following week. No way were either of us not running and playing RuneQuest. Like many people, I still have piles of paper in my attic with character sheets and adventures from these campaigns. The fighting pit and pub that Globus Squawfart built in Dykeen. The increasingly unreadable Games Workshop RuneQuest character sheet of Kraken Thorkerson, Stormball Bison Rider and eventual Rune Lord. RuneQuest was our passion. In fact, in the Upper Fifth, our passions ran so high between the rival groups of the Zaraxarani Death Lord and the Older Army Priestess that parent phoned parent to try and calm the situation like wise elders after a nasty cattle raid. It was RuneQuest first and foremost until we drifted apart, leaving school and scattering across the country with the demise of the real White Dwarf seeming to mark a definitive end. The newfangled internet had bulletin boards and I read tales of the reaching moon. I even plucked up the courage to attend a convention, but this didn't go well. Despite my excitement meeting Greg Stafford for the first time, I was rather overwhelmed by the Glorantha-files, who all seemed to know each other, and whose conversation was packed with Gloranthan trivia and in-jokes. I felt I had failed my initiation, and I retreated back to Dungeons & Dragons. Then came a sudden chance to get involved again. Greg was setting up a new company, and I actually emailed back and forth with the great man. Beautiful books came out over the next few years, from Moon Design, but it was still just something I read about and planned in my head until 2012 when the Guide to Glorantha appeared on Kickstarter. Even though it didn't appear for a few years, I resolved to get back to Gen Con. I could take my eldest, and now both boys have been dragged in front of the Chaosium team to pay their respects. Since then, everything has pulled me back to Glorantha. The amazing new Hero Quest, 13th Age and Rune Quest Glorantha, the grogs who share my passion, and of course the games, both face-to-face -face and online. I could drone on for hours, and if you've met me, I apologise for doing so, but I'm running out of time. I was given specific instructions not to list names here, but that is difficult, because games really are the people you play them with, and the Grog Squad exists as a community. So, here's a shout-out to everyone I've met online or at conventions in the last few years. First, Dirk, Blythe, and last but not least, that Gaz of the Smart Party. Now, just in case Dirk edited that list a little due to me going on a bit, rest assured that if I have met you online or face-to-face, I am hugely grateful for the friendliness and expertise of this incredibly welcoming community. If you're listening to this and wondering about joining in, just sign up to a grog meet, online or eventually for real. The grog squad need you. So, play games. And be excellent to each other. Library use. We're in the attic. Well, we're not in the attic. We're in our respective attics. We've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. And we're doing it across the airwaves because, well, I can't get in my attic now after uh, 12 weeks of lockdown, my girth, I can no longer convince myself that I can't fit through the hatch, the hatch is shrinking. I've decided that it's uh, cheese and beer has given a man's shape over these 12 weeks. Well, it's a good job you, you didn't indulge in the cheese and beer inside the attic, otherwise you'd still be in there. <laughs> but maybe that's a good thing, I don't know, maybe you should have done that. Trapped in the attic. You're trapped, yeah. in the attic. You're trapped in your room, aren't you? So yeah. maybe oh, attic tell, better. tell me about it. I know that when we first started this, we used to try and replicate and, and try and reconstruct <laughs> our teenage bedrooms, didn't we? We, we, we kind did, of yeah. 
painted a picture with words for our audience of what our teenage bedrooms were like back in the 80s. I think I'm actually doing it now. I think I am now replicating my teenage bedroom because I'm I'm working and playing, playing games and podcasting from the Mm. same room about 12 hours a day. Yes, yeah. And I find, what I find I do is I, I leave this room briefly and then I'm kind of drawn back to it. <laughs> I, le- I leave, I think, oh, I need to get out of this room. We're in this room for hours. I need to get out. I need to get, go in the garden or something. And I walk out and I'll wander around the house like like, like, a, like a lost dog almost. <laughs> and eventually just almost unconsciously find myself sat back here again. There's nowhere yeah. else to go. I just keep being <laughs> drawn back to this room. The rest of the house is, is not quite as interesting there's less interesting things in the rest of the house so I just get drawn back all the time and for another few hours sitting here worrying that it doesn't open hoping and worrying that it doesn't smell like my teenage room although it may do yeah I don't I'm, know you're like your nose blind now you do these things <laughs> yeah nose blind yeah I'm fully <laughs> expecting a sock to come crawling out from under your <laughs> desk yeah so another thing I've been doing um, during uh, lockdown is just going through my stuff and rediscovering some of the stuff that mm. I have. So it is a bit of a, a cleansing period, isn't it? A bit of a chance to kind of uh, clear the cobwebs off uh, some of the stuff that you had in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's, clean, it's cleansing in that. It's not cleansing personally. I'm not having a wash till two in the afternoon, you know. <laughs> <And it's>, well, <laughs> but I know what you mean, yeah. Metaphorically cleansing, if not physically. Yeah, I found a lot of stuff. Um, I found uh, my old Quest World box, for example. Not the original one, because obviously um, I lent that to somebody and I never got it back. But back when we started getting back into it, um, I f- yeah, I found uh, Quest World. And it, it, did, it did cross my mind that mm, it'd be re- quite good to uh, revisit the cult of Panache and uh, those places. Yeah. And- well, I, I've, yeah, but you see what you're doing there? Is what I'm doing with in lockdown. I'm, I'm getting more and more crazy RPG ideas because I, I can't do anything else. Yeah. I'm, I don't know about you. I'm kind of reading more RPG. I think I, I made a, I made a New Year's resolution that I wouldn't buy any more games in January, and lockdown happened. I probably bought more games over lockdown than I have the previous year because I just get kind of bored and think that looks interesting. That looks interesting. I mean, I, I could buy that. I could run that because, let's face it, we're not doing anything else, are we? And, yeah. and before you know it, you, you've got so many ideas and scenarios and games dotted around the room that you're reading. Think, oh, I'm going, going role-playing mad. Yeah, I, I have indulged. And uh, you know what's happened as well? Is, um, uh, a Grog Squad member, Ian, is, uh, is downsizing. And so he put on eBay a load of his stuff. And so I took the opportunity to grab some stuff that I always wanted as a a 13-year-old but never got hold of. So I got Space Opera. I got the Space Opera. Yeah, yeah, Space Opera. I remember that. that. used to be on a shelf in Games Workshop. It's quite expensive. Yes. Quite expensive. And I think when I was quite young, I didn't quite understand the term space opera and thought, does it involve singing? I'm not sure. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's an odd name for role playing. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I know what a space opera is now. But I think when I was 13, I, I thought, what, what was that? 
But yeah, it had, it had a bit of a lure, didn't it? It was one of the slightly exotic games, wasn't it? One of the exotic games in Games Workshop. Yeah, I I don't remember it from uh, Games Workshop. I just remember it used to be one of those that was in Odyssey Seven in Manchester, mm. the other the comic and bookshop that we used to go to, and um, I it, it was one of those that um, I was inventing um, scenarios for uh, in anticipation of getting it, but I never got it. Inventing scenarios that involved singing in yeah. space. <laughs> It was it nearly it was Odyssey Seven. I don't know, but I think in Games Workshop they had they had the odd game that was just a bit of a fluky. They've only got one, and I yeah. think that was one of them. It just it sat there on a shelf, top shelf, gathering dust, you know, for for year. No one ever bought it. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna crack it up. I'm gonna give it a go because if you buy it, you've got to play it, haven't you? You've got to play it. That is the rule. You've yeah. got to play it. I've also been uh, looking up magazines. So this is a new. Uh, section this we're going to give it a try out we're going to, it's called library use mm. and uh it, it's a chance for us to find a vintage magazine and share it with each other yes have a discussion when you see what things what things we can glean from it because you know everything comes back to white dwarf but there was more than white dwarf around at the time so <sighs> sacrilege <laughs> but there was you're right actually there was we we what we, we read White Dwarf, you know, we read right double. There were there were other magazines. I've got a few, a few copies of different worlds and Space Gamer and things like that. Well, we, I've we set each other the challenge of finding uh, a magazine that was interesting. So let's okay. start with you. What have you got? I have got um, a copy. Different worlds. Different worlds. Different okay. worlds. Hold it. Um, don't let me just have a see. It's Ooh, a fantasy a bit, special. A bit of a garish cover, that isn't it? What is it? Yeah, it's well, it's like some kind of Greek god coming down and zapping a, I don't know, like an orc or a weird, weird rubber-faced lizard man or something like that. Oh, it describes itself as a magazine for adventure role players. Oh, November eighty-three, issue thirty-one, November nineteen eighty-three. Yeah. November. Well, it would have been a high point of our role-playing. Yeah, we would have been the thick, of, in the thick of it then, wouldn't we? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's that's the one I've picked. What about you? What have you picked? Well, you've got um, one from the San Francisco Bay. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got one from the Mersey Estuary. This is um, <laughs> Adventurer magazine. Uh, the oh, superior God. fantasy and science fiction games magazine. <laughs> they, they, they describe themselves yeah. as superior. I, superior. I do remember it, but yeah. Superior, okay. Yeah. It's a bit later, a bit later. Uh, this one it's from uh, uh, 87, issue 11, uh, June, uh, July, and it's on its cover. I don't know if you can see that it's um, one of Josh Kirby's very mm. distinctive illustrations for Terry Pratchett, and this yeah. is for equal rights. And there is a promotional interview inside with Terry Pratchett. You know, I've spent a bit of time um, this afternoon just having a look at this cover, and there's so much going on on it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because he, he did some for uh, the Corgi uh, Tunnels and Trolls books, didn't he, as well? But these is all like little bits going on. There's like uh, monsters grappling, rinse winds leg, and uh, books flying around, and it's really, uh, really intricate and interesting. So go on, pick out your highlight from uh, different worlds. What have you, what have you got there? Well, do you know, do you know, I have to say, I have to say, it's um, it's a good, it's a really good read. Actually, it's a very good issue. I mean, I did, I, 
we've got some other different worlds. I think it's a bit hit and miss, wasn't it, with things like this? Because I think we buy them from Odyssey 7 in Manchester. And it, it, I don't, I, from memory, I don't think they were consistent. So you couldn't couldn't go in and buy issue 31 and then next month issue 32 would be there. It was all a bit hit and miss. No, it? it was hard to get hold of. I think I got my different worlds from Forbidden Planet when we went down to London. I'm yeah. pretty sure yeah. it wasn't available at Games Workshop in Manchester. No, it wasn't wasn't available in Games Workshop, but I don't know if Odyssey 7 had one or two every now it's like every now and again it was like gold dust if you found one and you think, oh look at this, it's different worlds. Yeah. But is it it is a good magazine actually in, in many ways. It's interesting, you know, it's got like uh, it's got like film reviews. It's got it got an article My Life and Role Playing by um, someone called Dave Hargrave, but people talking about gaming in a kind of quite a personal way, which is it's got a gossip columnist called Gigi Darm. Gigi oh, yeah. Darm, gossip columnist. Yeah, G- dear Gigi, that was a that was yeah. kind of a focal point, wasn't it? And, yeah, uh, yeah. There always used to be stuff in the uh, letters page about uh, Gigi. And, there was, yeah. There's a there is there's a weird letter saying I, I hate different worlds. I hate everything about your magazine, except Gigi, except Mister Arm. I've written to her, but she never get I never get any answers. How about her real name? I'll search the country for it, name and address withheld. And the thing I'd say about uh, different worlds is, to me, it was always pitched at a different level of maturity than uh, yes, White that, Dwarf. That, that, that comes across, actually. It is, because there's a, there's, a, there's a feature in um, it. I think it's, um, it's some pictures, gaming conventions. Um, I, think, I think it's, it's Origins. Yes, yeah. Origins. And it, it clearly is for the more mature gamer because there are pictures of people. Uh, you know, there's a picture of Greg Stafford and other, other people I've never heard of, um, although I'm sure they're all famous. But people, and, and to a man, to a man, they all have the T-shirt tucked in the trousers. So, you know, it, it clearly <laughs> the more mature gamer there. It's, it's almost like, a, it's like pictures. It's like in 1983, we, we're looking at pictures of a gaming convention in America uh, attended by our dads. <laughs> That's what they look like. So, yeah, you're right. It is. It is much, it's kind of slightly more mature. And, 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 that, uh, and, and, and the thing with different worlds as well, it's not only the content was mature, but it treated games as though game, a role-playing game was in a more mature state than we were being fed in the UK. And what I mean by that, I I seem to remember with uh, White Dwarf, it was a constant like onboarding process for new people. It was always trying to pitch this to people who were new to gaming. Hmm. This is a new hobby. Come and enjoy this new hobby. Whereas you never got that sense with uh, different worlds. It was always a sense of this is it, you know, take it or leave it. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. So if you 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 know you know what's going on. Here's a magazine for you. You know what's going on. You know what it's all about. We're we're taught to you on the level, kind of thing. Yeah. And and that article that uh, uh, that it used to have, and I think it used to be on and off that my life in role playing. But even then, they were like talking with a degree of nostalgia about the play games that they used to play 10, 15 years ago. You know, this is what in yeah um, eighty three. You know. Yes. Yeah. The, the other thing I remember about uh, different worlds is that um, because of its chaosium connection, it did also seem to pitch the articles very much about um, 
philosophy and religion. It wasn't, they didn't never seem very um, uh, practical to my mind, you know, as a gamer at that time, reading them, I, I never looked at them and thought, oh yeah, yeah. I could use that for my games. I used to be quite baffled by them. Well, the, well, you, you're right. You, you're absolutely right because the the cover feature, the, the cover feature in this issue, is a thing called the Sunstone Multiverse, and it's described as a cosmology for pantheistic worlds. <laughs> and you think, all right, interesting, yeah, worthy of discussion. But yeah, I know what you mean when we were kind of twelve or thirteen, we would have, you know, probably wonder what pantheistic meant. You, you wouldn't. You, that would not be an article in White Dwarf. You know, they might have a, an article about a multiverse or something like that, but they certainly wouldn't title it a cosmology for pantheistic worlds, would they? There are, yeah, there's some interesting articles. I mean, the pantheistic one, I'm not, I'm not so sure how interesting that really is. When when games start banging on about uh, cosmologies and religion too much, again, I always glaze over a bit. You know, I don't mind. I don't mind the cults in uh, RuneQuest or in D and D where. They have a kind of practical purpose of, yeah, you worship Stormwall and you're like a berserker and it kind of informs what your character's like or in D&D would inform what your cleric's like uh, if, you, if you're daft enough to play one. But um, sometimes when things go on and on and on about it, I, I do find it a bit tiresome. It is a, it, it remains an enduring obsession, though, doesn't it? This yeah, idea of trying to describe um, the different planes and different... Because um, even in like the Dungeon Master's Guide, the, the yes. fifth edition, yeah. it, that's what it starts with, doesn't it? It doesn't start with, you know, it is how to construct a, an adventure. It starts with, this is the multiverse. This is the different yes. power yeah. factions that are in play. This is, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. There's a nine-hand Tartarus and the happy hunting ground. And you're thinking, oh, God, give, give, give us a break. How <laughs> useful is that list to anybody? In, uh, in this uh, adventure uh, magazine, uh, the feature article for this one is it's a, it's similar. It's a similar uh, wordy piece. Um, it's called um, "Court in the Act." Court in the Act. Oh right. So it's a it's a play on the word "court" and "court," um, and it's a legal system for. Uh, you ready for this? This is this is the. Uh, world this game game world because adventure kind of had aspirations to replicate um imagine magazine of yes. course imagine magazine yes. had pelinor didn't it yeah and um with with the adventure they too had their own game world um and it's called scatophagium scatophagium that sounds That's like a- something you wouldn't want to be diagnosed with <laughs> sorry so sit down dirk yeah. <laughs> sit down I'm afraid you've got scatophagium. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. How long have I got, Doctor? <laughs> well, again, this this one is uh, um, goes into lots of uh, minute detail into how the law and the legal system works in the town. And, you know, you, get, you, you read these articles a lot, and you did in, back in the day, didn't you? But it always used to default down to there are constables and you will be tried by jury. It's kind of it's in it, it, this one. It's got some uh, case studies of jurisdiction, so that you've got some precedent to set your court scenes. Is it, is it for a fantasy world? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is for. Fantasy know, the world. fun, the fun, the surely the fun with the fantasy world is is that the legal system is non-existent. So the city guard give you a good old kicking. 
No, we are funny. So you don't you don't want a, a rigorous legal system where well I have a right to be tried by a jury, and I think you'll find the maximum penalty for throwing a turnip at the arch sorcerer is uh, simply a month a month in jail. No, the whole point of a fantasy world is that you throw a turnip at the arch sorcerer, and before you know it, you're going to be executed. Oh, before you know whole, it, yeah. the, the whole system's bent. That's the yeah. fun, isn't it? <laughs> you're going to face being turned into a turnip. Yeah, exactly, the... exactly, exactly. That's the whole fun, isn't it? You know, not not some kind of reasonable. Don't, don't invent a reasonable legal system for a fantasy world. Just go with an unreasonable one on the whim of the judge. I do. I do think though, Scatophagium is aspiring. <laughs> to... <laughs> don't laugh I'm, at I'm, it. I am laughing at it. How many points <laughs> do you get in Scrabble for that? Would it be allowed? How many points? I do think Scatophagium is aspiring to be Pelinor, but mm. the maps are not as good as Pelinor, and really the writing isn't as good as uh, you got in Imagine. Because um, the thing that Pelinor did that did, did really well was to focus on character and uh, give you ideas for NPCs and little hooks. This is more to do with the minute details, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. So what else is in different worlds? What have you got there? All right, so the few, there's quite a good article. I mean, we just talked about detail, but there's quite a good article on poisons, actually. It's oh. kind of interesting because I suppose sometimes in role-playing games, you know, poisons can just be all poison. And certainly back then in, in the 80s, poison was just poison. Oh, you've had some poison, take some damage, save versus poison or die kind of thing. Whereas this kind of gives you diff- some different poisons and different, you know, kind of how long they take to have an effect and that kind of we used to we used to argue a lot about poisons we used to argue a lot about poisons in RuneQuest because it used to be a bit of power play didn't it you got blade venom you were guaranteed a kill weren't you it was pretty important pretty lethal in uh, RuneQuest yeah I mean it doesn't I don't think it says what I don't think it says what system this is for it's it looks like it's don't know looking at the poisons I would say it is for RuneQuest I think I think uh, different worlds used to have a habit of uh, being um, system agnostic, or at least when they used mm. to present things, they used to try and do it for as many systems as possible. Yeah, that's what this is like. You could you could run it for RuneQuest, but you could do it for D and D. You could do it for other systems if you wanted to. But it's quite uh, it's quite interesting. Lots of little poisons. Do you want to have some, do you want to guess some of them? Roll on pharmacy. Is that the skill and- I need to roll on? Anthane. 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 What does Anthane do? You only need a gram of it, but it's 350 gold pieces, apparently, according to this. Anthane. Um, Anthane, Anth- yeah. Anthane. It sounds symptoms. like... Symptoms. Go on. It sounds like something Wilco Johnson would have to get him through a night, Anthane. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, back possibly. in the 70s. So, yeah, I'm going to say it's some kind of speed or some kind of um, way of accelerating your uh, your body. Well, no, well, so maybe hot, hot flashes. Hot flashes, it says here. Hot, hot flashes. flashes. Is that a misprint? Sparkly vision. Sparkly in inverted commas. Sparkly vision. So, yeah, it probably is something Wilco Johnson takes. Um, dryness in mouth and throat. Although it does do to... 2d20 damage per hour. Yeah, you're kind of screwed if you have that. So Wilco, yeah, it might get you, might get you through a gig, Wilco, but afterwards... So, so that's gig. 
so that's definitely like a, a, an offensive poison then. So are they well, all offensive? Is there an inoffensive one? It's poison. Oh. It's offensive poison. Ah, uh, right. I get I get you. See, I was, not uh, drugs. Ah, right, so okay. You, you go badly wrong with that assumption. No, they're all poisons. They're all poisons. Drill uh, so, weed. Drill weed. Come on, drill, drill weed. weed. Drill, drill, drill weed. weed. Okay. It costs I'm, 20 gold pieces. Drill, drill weed. I'm thinking that you could disguise it into someone's uh, cabbage soup with uh, some navy beans and some mastic. And yeah. you would have the drill weed, and it goes into spirals. It starts to destroy your internal organs. Well, just, ooh, wow, yeah. Well, it well it does. It's uh, it's a plant, a planty. It tastes planty in inverted commas again. So planty, like lettuce. Leaf does not dissolve in liquid. It, it symptoms of violent headaches, makes concentration virtually impossible due to pain, possible brain damage, lose one IQ point for every six points of damage taken. Now you look at that and then you look at the damage, 10d6 damage. You're not getting out of that, are you? No. IQ losses is the least of your worries there. 10d6 yeah. damage. We'll try, we'll try one more. Yeah, go on. I'm enjoying this. Go on. Iron, iron ale. Iron, iron ale. Iron ale. So iron ale, I'm thinking that it is. Um, it does sound like uh, something that brew dog would come out with, actually, doesn't it? Iron mm, ale, because it's got like a, a bit of a, a Scottish vibe to it, you know, iron brew. Um, <laughs> so I wonder if it is actually made from girders, so it contains filings, and uh, it makes you uh, susceptible magnetic forces. Okay. Well. Apparently, its odour is of dried beer. It's yeah. a light amber liquid, mm, and its symptoms—its symptoms are nausea and vomiting. So it's beer, isn't it? <laughs> is this beer? Beer. A, well, I mean, it's technically a poison, I suppose. Some, some would, yeah, I suppose. But that's just beer. Is it? That's it. So, so no. Well, you take you take two d six damage per minute for for five. The effect. Begins effect, 5d6 minutes, runs its course in 3d8 minutes, and its damage is 2d6 per minute. I mean, again. It's special brew, isn't it? Special brew, that. Special brew. (laughs) Special brew and certain death. (laughs) Anyway, there you go. Uh, So that's quite a... You could probably... It's the kind of thing you think you you probably might use some of that in a game. Back in the day, you'd look at it and pick a pick a couple and think, "Oh yeah, you go on. let's let's," you know. Whether you'd inflict it on a player or not, I don't know. But the players might the players might be given some to slip into someone's drink, some you know, break in somewhere, assassinate someone. That you know, that's what you'd use it for, isn't it? Seems a bit hard to put it on a player. They're all they're all they're all lethal. Ten d eight damage. Good grief. So what about you? Yeah, so um, with uh, with Adventurer magazine, as I've said previously, it did kind of um, mimic the style of um, Imagine. And around that time in 87, that's when uh, the fanzine scene was really uh, taking off. So there is a, a fanzine section um, in mm-hmm. here um, promoting uh, magazine. And there is a sense, that much more than White Dwarf ever was, 
Um, it's much more lively in terms of content that's been produced by people who read it. Um, so the um, it, it's got more uh, space given over to letters to the editor. This one uh, caught my eye. This is from uh, Alistair Morway, Cardiff. Right? Mm-hmm. When are we going to see articles in Adventurer aimed at players? It seems to me that all the articles, and especially the scenarios, are aimed at the DM. Why is this? I am one of those fortunate people who likes to play the D&D game, so I can't read much of what you're printing. Uh, colon, colon, dash, my brother, the Dungeon Master, <laughs> yeah. won't let me. Final, <laughs> final line, final line here. <laughs> well, it's not right! Exclamation mark. Well, you know what, mate? Get to go do what we did. Go and buy Traveller. <laughs> go and buy Traveller, and he, he, the, the brothers clearly. I mean, sensible lad. He's enforcing the Prime Directive, isn't he? That. But just interesting. It's a fair point, though. Actually, yeah. with the magazines, isn't it? Because yeah, he does. I mean, they almost all assume you know that you're a. You're a games master, so like the poisons, isn't it? The poisons that that article there is it's for games masters, of course, it is not for players, you know. So, yeah, fair point, I suppose. And there's a lot of uh, content, isn't there, that's uh, produced now, even on the internet, mm. that is geared towards um, games masters rather than players. Yeah, if you were just to pl- if you just played these games, if you just played them and never ran a game, then. Yeah, you, you, yeah, a lot of content's all closed door, isn't it? A lot of it, you know. You could yeah. buy rule books, I suppose, read the rules because you're a player and you want to understand the rules. But the rest of it is, yeah, mm. still a point. I hope I hope he sorted that out. I do, yeah. I hope he did buy Traveller. No, maybe not Traveller. Something, something else. Yeah, It'd be horrible <laughs> to go through life having that help hold over you. Uh, you can imagine, Christ- can you imagine Christmas, couldn't you? That the house, even now. They could have grown. They put middle-aged men out. They now turn up at Christmas. If he sees his brother every Christmas, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a simmering resentment. Yeah, his brother might still be into role-playing games. You know, he's not. Can you imagine yeah. that? Yeah. He, he unwraps. He unwraps um, presents on Christmas Day, and uh, his brother gets uh, an adventure magazine. Oh, I can read it now, can I? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Oh, right, yeah. Now I can read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else have you got there? Well, there's an art. There's uh, uh, the key thing is an article uh, as a scenario, rather, by Ken Santandra, Stormbringer. But as I flick through, there is an advert which has made me laugh. It, it simply says, Wear it if you dare. Wear it if you dare. And there's a picture of a young man, a, fit, a hazy picture of a young man who has hair like I have now after the lockdown, sort of slightly long over the years, 80s haircut. Um, wear it if you dare. Do you know what it's an advert for? What's it? What? Aramis? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no one would dare wear that. Call a Cthulhu t-shirts. Call a Cthulhu t-shirts are now available. They come in adult, small, medium, large, and extra large. Mm. Extra, extra, extra large with the gaming fraternity there, the Mr. Trek. Shirt front shirt front features Cthulhu rising from the sea and the words call of Cthulhu. Now, the reason I picked this is because back in the day, you would have looked at that and thought, wow, 
Yeah, imagine, imagine having a call of Cthulhu t-shirt. Everyone's got one now. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. got one. I've got three. Everyone wears them. <laughs> you don't even know what Cthulhu is. But back then, that would have been, that would have been like, I don't know, it was like a magic item, wouldn't it? Imagine if one of us, me, you or Eddie, had turned up for a game wearing a Call of Cthulhu t-shirt in 1983. You, you would have been the envy of, well, not, not the neighbourhood, the neighbourhood would have thought you're odd, but the, the envy of the other two, wouldn't you? Big deal. Seven pounds, seven dollars. Oh, so it's a bargain. It's a bargain. Now. It's probably a lot of money then. <laughs> anyway. British thoroughbred racehorse and broodmare. Hang on, Alexa's joining in. Shut up, Alexa. She wants a Cthulhu t-shirt. <laughs> she can't have one. Get back. Funny that. Hey, hey, what's happened there? The word Cthulhu triggered Alexa. Yeah, and it gave me some information about a racehorse. Think about that, everyone. <laughs> Think about that. Anyway, moving on. Um, there's an article, Storm scenario, uh, by Ken St. Andrew called the, uh, the Bastions of Ballow. And um, I mean, it's the kind of thing that if we'd have seen this on the shelf back in the day, I'd have, I'd have snapped it up because, you know, there was very little published for Storm Ringer, wasn't there? Um, but it's, it's a relatively simple um, scenario where Ballow, who's the. Um, the chaos gods jester, yes. the gesture of the chaos yeah. gods, isn't it? Um, has, has warned Ariok that uh, Elric will spell doom and Ariok doesn't believe him. So Balor creates this uh, dungeon and gets permission from Ariok to uh, entrap mortals and make them, make them kind of enter this dungeon for the amusement of the gods uh, in the knowledge that Ariok will at least allow Elric to go in there once. And say you can you can play Elric. It almost encourages you to play Elric. Have someone play Elric. Ah, so it's for a group of characters, but but um, you can include Elric. But it's very much like um, is it the oh, the the tunnels and trolls solo naked? Is it Naked Doom? Oh yes, where yeah. you're in the so you arrive in the dungeon with no clothes and no weapons. Um, and you have to kind of fight you fight your way through it, that kind of thing. So it's only a little simple thing, but it's quite colourful, quite characterful. Um, but it is it is a bit like Naked Doom. But what what amused me about it, um, and it you've got, I'll give you some of the monsters, okay. You've you've got a, a demon of uh, demon of combat in there and a demon of protection, demon of combat, purple feet, purple fiend with daggers for fingers and horns and that kind of thing. And you've got all these, these monsters. You've also got um, a room with uh, these pleasure demons who are disguised as attractive, scantily clad women. Who are Can Can you guess? There's one picture. There is one picture. So there's demons, there's traps, there's monsters, all these things. There's one what? picture. What's things to picture of? Is it a, um, somebody in a bikini? It's three women in bikinis, yeah. Scantily yeah. clad. <laughs> Very well-developed women in bikinis. It made me laugh at that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's the 80s. Particularly the uh, beginning of the 80s, isn't it? Because I, I know that um, uh, Adventurer magazine used to have uh, contributions by women and mm. uh, women that appeared in its letters page. I always thought that was uh, unusual. It used to catch my eye. Um yeah, right then. So yeah. you know, even like in '87, you're starting to see more uh, 
different people playing different voices. Yeah. I used to like in uh, in different worlds. They sometimes used to have the um, adventures on different uh, paper stocks. So it used to be on like a heavy paper. Right. It is. It is. Yeah. It's like on open. You you pull. You the idea is you can pull it out to the magazine. Yeah. And use it as a little module. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it gives you instructions on to do that at the beginning. You, know, you can lift it out. It points out the idea that you can lift it out of the, you know, as if as if if you didn't do that, people would point and laugh. Yeah, why is he why is he why is he doing this? God, he's not pulled it, not pulled it out of the magazine. You you instructed to do that. What a fool! Let me uh, let me show you the um, shop window. The shop window here in. Uh, in Adventure Magazine, what do you want to spend your uh, your pocket money on? Okay, here, go on. here you go. Here's your here's your opportunity now. Mm-hmm. You can have the Muskogee Fairgrounds and Combat Showcase for Car Wars, the Muskogee Fairgrounds and Combat Showcase for Car Wars, mm-hmm. the Art of the Dragonlance Saga, the Art of the Dragonlance Saga. <clears throat> Go on, you have to do better than this. Pocket See, money is where well. the pocket. I'm thinking. I'm thinking the Cthulhu T-shirt with my pocket money. Now you have to beat that. CM8, the endless stair. Or is that is that D module? It is. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, last but not least, teenagers from outer space. Teenagers from outer space. What's that? A game. Yeah, it's a game. Now th- this has got. Um, it's got a, a review by uh, James Wallace. So James Wallace is still uh, active in the uh, game in industry. So Teenage from Outer Space, it starts off, Yeah, whoa, like aliens, foxy chicks, zap guns, flying saucers, zap guns, bug-eyed monsters, zap guns, foxy chicks, yeah. No. For those of you who haven't heard, Teenagers from Outer Space is a game in the mould of Ghostbusters or Toon, with simple mechanics and the emphasis on fun, in inverted commas. The Earth has been discovered by aliens who have decided to enrol their kids in our schools. You are a student, either a human or alien. Sounds good? It should be. Unfortunately, there are a few hitches. And he goes on to say um, that it, well, it says it's rubbish, really. But <laughs> Well, yeah, you sang without a trace, did it? <laughs> but there's an interesting story that uh, James Wallace refers to. He says, now for a history lesson. A while ago, a game called Alma Mater caused a small stir in the hobby. Legend has it that TSI banned it from the U- US conventions on account of the sex and drugs content. Alma Mater was more or less Animal House, the RPG. It's a fun system, nicely put together, and with some good ideas. Unfortunately, it's virtually impossible to write a playable scenarios for it. The game is just too limited in scope, and everyone knows that students just sleep anyway. The lack of potential plots is duplicated here. And what I find interesting about this is, because I always assumed that that mould of having teenagers in uh, role-playing games Hmm. It's a fairly new thing, you know, like with monsters. Yes, I was saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's, tells, it's, tells right. from the loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't sounds like it doesn't. This doesn't sound like it's tales from the loop. It's uh, sounds like a mashup between Ghostbusters and Toon, if you can imagine such a thing. Yeah, tales from the loop is 
I don't think it's necessarily based around Stranger Things, but it's based around E.T. and those kind of films, isn't it? Whereas, you know, that's the way it works. But, yeah, yeah Animal House, the role-playing game? Mm, no, yeah. don't think so. Yeah. I, I think in the intervening years, teen comedies and teen um, uh, films have become more sophisticated, haven't they? Yes, th- that's true, they have. And I suppose if you were, yeah, if, if you were, making a role-playing game about them. And I suppose what is interesting, isn't it? I suppose things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the teen teen stuff has become like fantasy, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, where, where I mean, there, there probably was stuff like that back then, but not, not as prevalent. So you look at Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Twilight, that kind of thing, you know, where you've got all that teen stuff going on in a in a fantasy or supernatural setting, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. Whereas back then that wasn't really a thing, so it wasn't. Yeah. You know, it, it, it things like Tales from the Loop sort of sort of translate. Maybe it's a discussion for another day, isn't it? But maybe translate through those kind of films and those kind of TV shows, don't? They? Perhaps. Well, that's it then. So um, it, I think uh, Different Worlds gets a thumbs up. Yes, uh, I enjoyed enjoyed reading. It's good. It's a good magazine, you know. Yeah. One of the good things about the, um, Adventure Magazine is that uh, it did. It was like a, a, a an aspire. It was a. It, it feels like a, a fanzine, and many of the fanzine uh, contributors, like Ian Marsh and James Wallace, uh, contributed. And actually, uh, Nick Edwards, who's appeared on First, Last, and Everything, has got a scenario in here—a Merp scenario, Merp D and D crossover scenario. Yeah. Darkness over every door. The T-shirts here are four ninety-nine, um, and uh, you can get it with doing it for the XP with Adventurer. That was uh, Mark Taylor from Bow St. Andrews winning design. You can send off for that. So <laughs> Send off for it. See what happens. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Bailey. Okay. Thank you. The good friends of Jackson Elias are Scott Dawood, Paul Fricker and Matthew Sanderson. And together... They talk on their podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and weird fiction, as well as other horror role-playing games. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or head over to BlasphemousTomes.com. Thanks again to Lars for the interview. The actual play in High Dudgeon for Leoness is now available in three parts on the Design Mechanisms YouTube channel. Since last time, we've started a Discord server. I know, I know, I can hear you all collectively wince. I was reluctant myself, but it's turned out to be a pleasant space. It's a bit like a combination of a Usenet newsgroup without the threading and a chat room with a fire hose of chat. But the Grognard file space is quite sedate once you've worked out how to get rid of that noise. If you want to keep up to date with the latest development of projects, then please stick a tip in the beret over at Patreon. It keeps fuel in our tank and we're very grateful for the continued support of our patrons, especially in these difficult times. Thank you all for your continued support and for listening. Joining the armchair adventurers with a comfy chair is P. 
Kevin Ford, adding a poof, C. Myville, Thomas Rawlings, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Pete Smith, Tom McCambly, and Steve Race, who's contributed for quite a while, has increased his pledge. Thank you to you all. When people join at the sofa level and above, I like to roll them a virtual gift from a relevant table. With the Mongoose publication of Hawkmoon, there are also a number of supplements. One of them was for Grand Bretagne. So, how can you say you're lonely and for you the sun don't shine? Let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of Lundra and roll on the encounter table. Nick Edwards is returning, so he encounters... 17. A man with a mask of cheap paper with pretensions above his station. Ian Bonner. 24. A clerk, his mask moist with sweat. Well, it can get busy at the cold face of bureaucracy. Roy Duffy. 61. A proud, staggering crow, keen to show off his ornithopter. Jordan Linton. He encounters 87, a newly appointed Tiger Knight, riding his horse through an admiring crowd. And Jonathan Cockrum. He's increased his pledge. He gets 72, a hawker, offering cheap tickets for a show. Don't take him, Jonathan. There's no ton. Thank you. Joining Patreon with a high-backed chair, you know, one of those with wings and a fancy poof, is Orcus Dorcus. And he gets... Oh, a serpent with his attendant ferrets looking for another subject for an experiment. Vaughan Allen has increased his pledge to add one of those contour rugs, you know, like the ones that you get around a toilet, but a bit fancier. He wanted me to roll something good for him and... And if I roll on this encounter table and hits the streets, I think it'll be a bit of a buzzman's holiday. So let me roll on an artefact table instead. It's a D10. Always oh, gets a 10. The rune staff. The fate of the world is now in your hands. Thanks, Vaughan. Thank you, everyone. Looking forward to the next episode. Eddie returns, beaming live from his shed. And we have a great interview with Jason Durrell. Until then, adios amigos. Adios.